Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Java Junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to be a salesman or a salesperson, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is a bona fide sales expert who specializes in helping businesses, sales professionals, and practically anyone who has an interest in sales to skyrocket their annual sales. But before I introduce you to Marcus Chen, who is also an executive member of the Forbes Business Council, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice and job seeking tips, as well as unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at Time. The number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Marcus Chan, the president and founder of Venley Consulting Group. It's a company that specializes in helping businesses, sales professionals, sales leaders, and literally anyone who is in sales to supercharge their results through their proven high performance training and coaching systems. With over a decade of winning awards, crushing sales quotas, and sales leadership experience, Marcus and his team team can help you transform your results in their very first year of business. They'd already trained thousands of sales professionals in over a hundred countries. In 2020, Marcus was named one of the top eight salespeople to follow by LinkedIn. And then this year in 2021, he was recognized by Salesforce as a top influencer to follow. Before going all in on what was his side hustle, Marcus had spent about 20 years in the workforce, beginning when he was in high school. Then in college at the University of Oregon, he worked between 60 to 100 hours in sales during the summer, that's a week, and 20 to 30 hours a week during the school year. Most recently, Marcus worked as a regional director of sales at Syntax Corporation. That's an almost $7 billion Fortune 500 organization that provides a range of highly specialized products and services for over a million customers. But the start of Marcus's stellar career in sales started way back in high school when he used to sell, wait for it, 
Speedo bathing suits. You know those, affectionately known as the banana hammock, right? Isn't that what they're known as? Okay, Marcus, (laughs) welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm hyped up, Captain, ready to rock. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So how the heck did you get into selling Speedos, Marcus? Yeah, so it's, it's funny. So uh, I grew up working actually very, very young. Actually, uh, even when I was five years old, I started working for my parents' restaurant. So they actually had a, a Chinese restaurant. So growing up, I actually worked there all through elementary school, high school. And my goal was when I graduated from high school and was going to college at the University of Oregon would be to keep working at my parents' restaurant to pay for my schooling. Now, in 2002, my parents decided to sell the restaurant. They sold the restaurant, which is really exciting for them. That now meant I had to go get a job somewhere else. So now I'm like, crap, where am I going to go make money to pay for school? I have to pay for everything. So I started reaching into my network at the time because online finding a job wasn't really a thing back then, right? So I'm looking like classified ads, et cetera, calling friends, family, figuring out, shaking every bush and tree. And I uncovered that one of the swim coaches in the area that he was actually the manager of a brand new swimsuit store opening up right by the campus. And it was selling Speedos and gear. So I applied, I interviewed, I got the job and I was making minimum wage. And it was actually a really fun job because between classes, I could work a couple hours here and there. But then on weekends, I would wake up at three, four o'clock in the morning, drive over to the store, load up a 1991 Ford Ranger pickup truck filled with Speedos and gear, drive an hour and a half, two hours to a nearby small town, wherever the swimming was, set up racks and stands, and I was sling Speedos for 12 to 14 hours, and then I would go and drive back home a couple hours later. And that was really fun because I got to learn a lot about doing that on my own and selling, et cetera. But that's how I got my start into just selling. But I didn't see that sales at the time. I saw it as I'm just basically a customer service rep, even though every weekend I doubled their sales. Incredible. Every weekend you doubled their sales. How did you do that? So it was interesting because when I first started doing those swim meets, I didn't realize what I was doing. I just go, I just did basically everything they told me to do. And they also started realizing, like, oh, what's weird? You doubled sales. I'm like, what do you do? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. And they noticed every time I was in the store, the order size is always bigger. So the ticket size is bigger. The swim meets with our double sales. Like, how are you doing this? I'm like, I literally have no idea. I had no idea. So I remember one of the days early on, my boss decided to watch me. Like, what is he doing with customers that come into the store? And I just did my normal thing. And my boss says, I know exactly what you did. Now I'm like, what did I do? He's like, you just stood there and you asked him questions. I'm like, okay, well, what do you mean? Because well, what most people was, would do is a customer would come in, they would sit behind the counter and they're like, okay, let me have any questions. A person would go, if they had questions, they come to you, whatever. They find what they want, and then they would go and they pay for it. I didn't do that. So they came in, like, I'll walk, I'll walk up to them, like, greet them. Hey, welcome to our store, blah, blah, blah. You know, what brought you in here? I'm looking to get a, a suit for my daughter. Okay, perfect. And instead of just guide them towards whatever, I'll say, I'll start asking more questions. Cool. Is this for competing? What level are they competing at? Or is it for practice? Oh, uh, before competing. Okay, cool. So uh, what level? And I'll recommend a suit. And they're like, okay, cool. That makes sense. And I would say, okay, cool. So what about for practice? You a practice suit? Well, well, no. Okay, cool. It'd be an easy upsell from there. And then I'd start diving deeper. Hey, what about goggles? What about swim caps? Do you have backups, et cetera? So I started to really educate them on really what gear they really needed 
to be a peak performing swimmer. And I didn't realize by asking these questions and guiding them towards different solutions, the ticket size would automatically increase as a result. And I would do that same thing at the swim meets as well. And it was, it was for me, it was very organic because I, I merely wanted to make sure they were walking with the best solution for their kid. So that's how I double it because I simply just took the time to get to know the customer and align what they needed based on what I covered and asked them questions. And I'm guessing, Marcus, that it helped that you had been a very successful swimmer in high school. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. So now was really key too, right? And on top of that, some of them had known me or seen me around because I was pretty good. So they knew me like, oh yeah, Marcus, you have all these records that they knew. So there's there a trust factor as a result. And also they weren't coming up saying, you know, and I was pushing products. I literally was uncovering their needs first and then making sure whatever I uncovered, I gave them the best recommendation. And I also didn't realize is I did certain things that actually would help gain trust faster. For example, if they're looking to get a certain goggle, maybe it's the most expensive goggle, and they say, hey, what do you think about this? Yes, I could say, yeah, you should buy it. I would ask more questions. Hey, what exactly are you looking for specifically? Oh, we're looking for a racing goggle. Okay. Well, what are the current challenges you're having? Oh, they always pop off. Okay. So actually, I don't recommend these ones then. I'm recommending these ones over here. It's actually going to save you a little bit of money as well. So I recommend getting a couple pairs of these versus the expensive pair. So I would downsell them when appropriate. Or if someone came in, they said, I want to get a, maybe they have a, a young kid who's grown really rapidly, right? They're like 10 years old. They're growing like a weed, if you will. And they would want to buy maybe a shark skin, the fastest suit out there, which is also the most expensive, in which I knew they would outgrow by the end of the summer. So I would make sure, like I'll either downsell them or make sure the sizing was appropriate. So that way they were mentally prepared for that as well. Because sometimes they didn't care. They'd be like, oh, no, it doesn't matter. I'll buy you one then. But like, hey, listen. If they're telling me they're growing this much, if you buy the shark suit, which costs $200, by the end of summer, it's just going to be a waste because you only have two competitive you know, big meats in summer. It's going to be a waste of money. Go for this suit instead. It'll last longer. It'll stretch out or go you know, get a size up. And that way you can have it for the summer and maybe into the winter as well. So I'll always make sure I was customer focused and that gain more trust. And that was key for developing a better relationship. Because here's the reality. Then they're going to come back and come back and buy more. They'll get more things. They're going to trust my opinion a lot more than someone just trying to push a product on them that's not going to truly help and serve them. Totally. And you probably also got, they gave word of mouth recommendations like, oh, you well, definitely want to go to this store. Go see Marcus. Yeah. Go see Marcus. He'll take yeah. care of you. Exactly right. Marcus, is it necessary to be an extrovert to excel? in sales. Are you an extrovert? I'm actually a tested ambivert. So yeah, so it can help and hurt you actually if you're an extrovert. Because typically extroverts like to have attention, like to be to be out there and speak and talk, which can be really helpful in terms of certain parts of the sales process, maybe outbound prospecting. However, it may also hurt you because you might not be as open to listening to your prospect. And really whether you are an introvert or extrovert, at the end of the day, the most important thing is, are you able to truly listen to your prospect? Are you, do you have the self and social awareness of who you are and how you are coming across? Because depending on the prospect, can you adjust and fit them? I've seen a couple of studies where they say actually ambiverts are the best salespeople because they know how to turn it on, turn it off, Right versus sometimes the introverts can't do that, right? But at the end of the day, I have seen incredibly successful introverts 
because they're so good at listening to the customer, asking the right questions, and the customer trusts them and sees them as an expert because they do such a good job listening. So you don't have to be an extrovert. If you are an extrovert, that's okay. Just be fully aware of some of the weaknesses. And on the flip side, same thing with introverts. Be aware how you come across can also hurt you as well. So for example, an introvert that's typically more quiet, how they speak when they are speaking is really important for establishing authority. So if they are quiet, it's okay if you're quiet, but if they lack confidence, because you can have quiet confidence and their vocabulary and tonality does not reflect confidence, that can hurt them too. So either way, whether you are an introvert, extrovert, be really good at listening and be able to convey confidence in whichever style that fits best fits you naturally. Great. Thank you for that. I was just interviewing someone else the other day who told me that they believe selling is actually a foundational skill, no matter what job function you have, no matter what industry you work in, because at the end of the day, you need to be able to sell yourself, whether it's to get hired for a job, whether it's to get promoted, whether it's internally to sell your team on an idea, if you're a leader or just a member of a team. Do you agree? 100%. Selling is simply being able to influence and communicate. That's really all it is. And this applies across the board, right? So whether you are a doctor selling to a patient while they need a certain prescription or procedure, if you are a parent selling to your kid while they do certain things, or a teacher selling to a student, or maybe some people say, well, I'm, I'm an accountant. I, I don't do any selling my role. Well, I guarantee you, you probably sell certain concepts to your boss, whether you want to sell a certain change in policy or change in procedure or to get a raise. There's always going to be some sort of selling regardless. I'll give you a real example, right? My wife and I were talking about this the other day. So historically you know, speaking or traditionally speaking, when you're calling into a, when you have tech issues, you call an IT at your company and you're calling, most of the time they're engineers. So maybe they're not as good at communicating, if you will. And usually it's not a good experience. But those who understand that they are selling their expertise, if you will, they can communicate really well and they can really communicate well and they can influence properly and and make that person feel very confident whatever they are doing is going to solve their IT issue. And you don't see that very often, but when they understand that's powerful. My wife just had a great experience with, with an IT engineer who was like just very communicative, good job influencing and really showcase how you can solve the problem. It took longer, but they got it done and she felt confidence in that person. So good. That she actually wrote like a like a reference letter to their boss saying, wow, amazing experience from so-and-so. But that's my point. When you understand selling is everywhere, it becomes a tool that you can really master and that can help you get further in your life, in your career, in your own happiness, in relationships, money, and everything that you do. Mm, great. So before we get into what you're doing now with the Venley Consulting Group, I thought maybe we could rewind the clock to when you were in college, Marcus. You went to the University of Oregon to the Lundquist College of Business, where you majored in marketing and Chinese. Did you know what you wanted to do with that major when you graduated? I had no idea. In fact, I was supposed to be an architect before all that. So, (laughs) yeah. So you just realize as you gain experience and knowledge and years on your life, you realize you're always constantly learning. 
And I remember when I graduated, I really had no idea what I was going to do. Now, I was really fortunate before I graduated because I was very worried about not having a job. I was interviewing nonstop like a madman. And I actually had five job offers on the table. And it was interesting because they range anywhere from a $29,500 base salary to a $60,000 base salary, anywhere from B2B sales to being an analyst in a bank. I mean, they were like all, like all over the place. And I remember I turned down all the jobs for the lowest base salary, the $29,500. And that was a B2B sales role. And it wasn't because I was like, wow, I'm destined to be in sales. It wasn't. What was really, really important for me was I saw that as an opportunity to build as a startup division of enterprise, a startup division of a major Fortune 500 company. It was an opportunity to build something from scratch because they had zero customers. It was brand new to Oregon. So it was being able to go out there and get new customers and build a business up. And I saw that as a huge opportunity not to learn about sales, but to learn how to build a business, to learn the ins and outs of the business, and also hopefully be promoted up the ranks. I figured, hey, if it's a startup, there's less barrier entry to get promoted up. And because I didn't know what I wanted to do, I'm like, that seemed like a good idea. But more importantly, I really trusted the director that was there because he had hired me as an intern when I was in the carpenter side of business. I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to learn a lot about business and everything else in life, he's going to be a good person to follow. I really respect him. He's been really successful. I'm going to follow him. And also, whatever role he wants me to do, he gets some, you know, cleaning like dumpsters. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to learn a lot working with you, I'm going to go do it. Right. So I went for that opportunity. And it was interesting because I remember telling everyone about this and everyone was very much against it. My parents were not supportive at all. And they're like, well, you didn't become an engineer. You didn't become an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer. Now you can go be in B2B sales. That's really hard. And the economy was falling apart, right? It was 2007. The recession was starting to hit business. 2007. Wow. So then they're like, this is a terrible decision. I'm like, I'm going all in. I'm going to do this. So I remember like, when I started, I realized pretty quickly, I, I thought they were right. Because I'm like, this is like, this is just sales. Like, oh man, like, am I going to develop experience? And I was struggling because I made all these cold calls. I made all, I did all this work and I wasn't seeing any of the fruits of my labor. So it took me a while to really figure out and realize that I was in BB sales. And of course, I fortunately figured it out, started having success, got promoted multiple times. And I remember at that point, it was years later, 2011. So this is, at this point, four years after I graduated and I was running a team. We had one of the top operations in the company and I was like, hmm, can I do this somewhere else? Am I able to, to repeat what I did? Maybe I got lucky and I wanted to go see if I could do it somewhere else. So that's when I found Sintos Corporation. went over there and I started, I took a two-step demotion down. So I started back over basically to go back and see if I could redo it again. And that was in B2B sales. And what was really interesting was is only when I was able to repeat my success again was I willing to admit I was in B2B sales. Because literally for at the longest time, I remember, I remember being like 2010, 2011, and I would see family somewhere. Oh, hey, you still doing that sales thing? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm still doing that sales thing, right? What do you really want to do? I'm like, nope, this is what I want to do, right? But it took me years to get to the point of being 100% confident in what I do to be able to state I was proudly in B2B sales. So that took me a while to get to that point, but it was obviously really worked out for me. I didn't give up. It was ups and downs like anything else, but it became such a lucrative career, not just from a financial perspective, but also from a skill perspective and also who I became. So that's why it's key to understand and see sales as a journey, not just as a job. What a great story. And you were also recruited going back to college there for that paid summer internship at Enterprise Rental Car. It was a training program and you were eventually promoted 
to be branch manager. So that was during the, I guess, was it five years or so that you were at yes. Enterprise? So yeah. yeah, it started as an internship first. I did two years as an intern, right? They promoted me in between there to like another, you know, cooler role. And <laughs> then when I graduated, I was able to get into the other division. And then, so that was like 2007. And then I had multiple promotions. So even full-time in 2007, it took me one year from basically full-time employee, if you will, to get to branch manager about one year. If you could break it down for our listeners, Marcus, what do you think the secret sauce is to getting those promotions and being successful on the job? You mentioned that you kind of hitched your wagon to someone you admired, somebody who had a lot more experience than you did, who you could learn from. But what else did you consistently go above and beyond? Were you always going back asking for more work? What would you say would be the the ingredients to becoming yeah. successful? So there's, there's multiple ingredients for sure, right? Number one, you must be massively successful in the current role you're in. That's number one. So whatever role you're in, it didn't matter. So when I, when I first started as a B2B salesperson, like even though I struggled, but don't allow your struggles to be an obstacle for your success. Figure a way through, around, or over the obstacle. It's number one. And that could be acquiring knowledge, paying for knowledge, going out there, doing it, right? Getting mentors, whatever. Find a way to overcome whatever obstacle you have so you can be really successful. That's a minimum requirement to get promoted. To get promoted, you have to be really good at your job, right? Because no one wants to promote the person who's doing terrible, just so you know. Okay, so number one, I do really good at your job. Uh, number two, do more than your job asks. I mean, it's, it seems so simple, right? So for example... A uh, good, good example. So when I changed company in 2011 to a whole new company, now no one knew my background. They didn't care. They didn't care about the multi-million dollar business I built. They didn't care about my promotion. They didn't care. Anything. All, the, all they're like, hey, you're a new guy. What can you do for us? Right? And I remember the very first week I went to my boss. He said, I want you to go and knock on doors. I said, which is like, you know, physically walk into business. I'm like, okay, cool. He's like, I'm like, how many businesses should I walk into? He's like, everyone does at least, does about a hundred or so at the most. Do at least a hundred. Okay, no problem. I walked in over 300 businesses by foot that week. And I came back and my boss was like, it was Friday afternoon, right? And everyone, everyone would cut out early on a Friday afternoon. I made sure I went back to the office. It's like 435, right? I'm, I'm, I'm just taking care of stuff in my first week there. My boss sees me. I'm in the bullpen. He's like, oh, oh, you're here. I'm like, yeah, I'm just wrapping everything up. Hope you don't mind. He's like, no, it's, it's awesome. How was your week? I'm like, oh, pretty good. And he's like, so how many places did you walk into? And I'm like, I did over 300. He's like, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, I did over 300. He's like, no, you didn't. I'm like, well, you told me 100. I wanted to exceed your expectations, so I did 300. He's like, no, you didn't. I go to my car. So I already pre-organized it by um, geographic area, by also warmness of the lead into a shoebox. And like he shoebox, I opened it up, I showed him. He's like, oh, wow. He's like, how did you do that? I'm like, by foot? <laughs> oh, it was very easy. I geographically targeted it all out. I went one by one, went to every single business, right? I booked 20 meetings over the, over the week. This is what it looks like. He's like, holy crap. And I shared that. It wasn't about showing off, but it was about over-delivering, right? Even what was expected of me, over-delivering. And then on top of that, as you are doing your roles well, being able to help other people make them better. So I started to realize, I'm like, hey, you know what? Like I started having success and I saw some of my peers, they were not having success. I didn't wait for someone to say, hey, go, Marcus, go help them. I pulled them aside, hey, listen, can I give you a little bit of feedback? Oh, sure. Like, can I show you a couple different things? I think you, you can tweak. It's going to get you better results. Yeah, that'd be awesome. 
and I would show them and they started getting results, right? And that was really key. And different multiple people. And on top of that, here's the thing. You can't just do it without making sure someone knows about it, right? Because you have to be your, your best cheerleader. But it wasn't like, hey, look what I did, boss. I went to my boss and said, hey, listen, I showed, you know, I showed Johnny how I'm doing things. This is how I have this close ratio here. I think it'd be really helpful if I train the whole team, if you're open to it. Yeah. I'll put together PowerPoint. Is there anything you don't want me to talk about? No, just I'm going to do it. Cool. So now I'm making my boss's job easier. I'm training his people. So I'm removing pain and adding pleasure into the life of my boss by being that go-to person, right? Those type of things. And then, of course, that goes really, really well. What I do next? I went to my boss's boss. <laughs> okay, same thing. So now I'm building a reputation in a very short amount of time that I'm more than just an employee, that I'm willing to be a leader to do things that are beyond what everyone else is doing and do it consistently. And that's how you start standing out. I'll give you another example, right? So I just got promoted to be a salesman, one of the fastest promotions in the history of the company in nine months. I'm running Syntas. This is Syntas, yeah. This exactly. is Syntas. This is a yes. Fortune 500 right. company. Correct. So I became a sales manager in, in nine months, right? Which usually takes about three to five years to nine months. And it was interesting because I remember the first leadership call we had. My VP, he's like, he has 12 sales managers reported into him. And he's like, all right, everybody, like, yeah, we have this new press of Marcus. He's a new guy, whatever. Okay. And then later on in that same sales meeting, he's like, hey, listen, we have a new project on competitive intelligence. I need someone to own that and be able to distribute on a quarterly basis a breakdown of the competitors, like a SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Any takers, I raise my hand. I'll do it, boss. I got you. Now he's probably like, ah, freaking brown nose or Chan, like, new guy, like, trying to say, he's like, well, he, he texted me later. I didn't expect you. You're brand new to the job. I'm like, don't worry. I got you. I'll take care of it. So I made sure now I over-delivered as well. I mean, it went so well that I became their, his competitive intelligence for four years in a row. And it became like this nationwide spread across the board because people were like, what are they doing? They're, it's like, they know the intel. They know the competition is better than anybody else out there. So I started building influence as well and doing these type of things. What I also started doing as well was I also started uncovering what was most important to my boss and boss's boss's boss, their goals, their drivers, their opportunities, whatever. And I made sure I fulfilled them for them. Right. So whatever they're working towards, whatever areas I knew I could help serve them to make them look better, I would do. So, for example, like I'll give you a really simple one. So I knew my boss. He loved to make sure he got recognition from his boss, the president of the company. So when I was going to corporate, I said, hey, boss, listen, I want to make sure I build the right connections when I'm at corporate. Who should I have lunch with? He said, maybe my boss. I said, lunch with his boss. Right. And in the conversation, I strategically place specific things that I would bring up to make my boss look really good, right? So now I'm making sure I'm working every single angle to best position myself, right? So when opportunities show up, I'm the first go-to. But those are a couple of things I did to navigate the corporate environment of the ladder, if you will, or the jungle gym, whatever you want to call it. And on top of that, being able to do my job very, very well and also do my boss's job really well as well. So you do all these things together. It positions you to be like, okay. This dude is a winner. This gal's a winner. Let's freaking promote this from the fastest possible because they can impact more people by letting them run free. Ah, uh, what amazing examples, Marcus. And P.S., wasn't this around the time when you started working at this company that you also started getting your MBA? 
Yeah. So I did it right before that, right? So I did it before. So I was still enterprise at the time. And this is 2009. So I was already running a team already. And it was interesting because I got the MBA at the time, mostly out of fear, to be quite frank, like the economy was falling apart. And I'm like, you know what? We were middle of the last recession. We were deep down in the recession. And I'm like, you know what? I'm having success, et cetera. Let me just get an ace in my back pocket. So let me go and also uh, get my MBA. And on top of that, my wife now, but her girlfriend at the time, her dad was a professor there as well. And I knew it was very important for him for higher education. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to kill a few birds once. I'm going to propose this girl. I'm going to eventually marry this girl. Let me go get myself as an ace in my back pocket, get my MBA while working full time and also really wow him. Right. So that year, like I think I graduated 2011. We got married the year before that, bought a house and all these things as well. So I just I just took care of all at once. I'm like, do it all at once. And Marcus graduated having been nominated to be the number one in leadership out of over 450 students, which is, I mean, Marcus, when you put your mind to something, there is nothing you can't achieve clearly. But it would also be easy to assume that someone who clearly had and has the Midas touch in sales never experienced imposter syndrome. Was that the case? Oh, it happens all the time. All the time. Especially early on, before you are able to achieve tangible results, it hits you hard. You're like, oh man, can I actually do this? And it's, does it hit me today? Even Absolutely. It still does, right? Especially in the world of comparison where you see a highlight reel on social media, it hits everybody. But what I've learned, oftentimes the posture really exists in our own mind. Like the hardest territory to manage is right between our ears. And we're our own harshest critic. And imposter syndrome early on hit me a lot more. But once I started compounding wins, it's a lot less. Does it still hit me? Absolutely, right? Just like anybody else. But the key is this. I have found the best way to overcome imposter syndrome is, number one, you position yourself as most likely to win that situation. What can you control? How can you prepare? How can you out-prepare anything? Right. Like, for example, if you have never gone camping before, you might feel like an imposter going camp trying to figure it all out. Or you do your research, you get all the right equipment and you best position yourself to have the best possible camping experience. And as for any role you are in, how can you best position yourself to increase your win rate to increase your highest chances of success in whatever role? And then once you are in that, once you have that plan, once you have all things in place, take massive action. You got to take action. Like you can't just sit around just hoping that it's going to come to fruition. You have to take action because when you take action, then you get market feedback and you get some sort of result from it. When you get that feedback, you hit the feedback loop, then you analyze that result. What went really well? What can I keep doing? What did not go well? What can I eliminate, change, or tweak to get a better desired result? And then you go again. Life is really by A-B testing. If you want to overcome imposter syndrome, you have to constantly be testing and executing. And once you realize, even if you have fear, action cures that fear. So when you take that action, it makes the fear go away because now you get a result from it. Whether it's good or bad, now you'll know and you can react accordingly based on what you see. So Marcus, let's talk about what you're doing now in the company that you founded. I want to say, well, you went all in. In September 2019, but when did you actually start up your business as a side hustle? 
Yeah. So what's interesting is in 2015, at this point, I've been in my corporate career having pretty good success. And I had a lot of people, they kept asking me, hey, Marcus, you should write a book. 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 Like, how do you get promoted so many times? How do you like, how do you have a so-and-so minus touch? How are you just winning, et cetera? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just a regular guy. Like, I don't know. I like, just try hard. I fail a lot, make mistakes. just like anybody else. And at that point, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should write a book. So I didn't want to write a physical book. I want to write an ebook first because I was starting to become a popular thing. I'm like, if I could write an ebook, I could just sell it online. It's just fun. So I learned how to write an ebook, how to self-distribute and automate it all. And I just started selling online. And I remember when I launched it, just a very small list of people, I woke up and made $9. And I'm like, wow, some random stranger paid me $9. It was just like, it was just the weirdest thing. I'm like, I'm so used to having a conversation with someone before money's exchanged with us in the restaurant or anywhere else. And this is weird. But I realized there was potential to build an online business. And I started thinking, okay, what else do people ask me about? And I realized a really common question was about B2B sales. A lot of common questions about B2B sales, right? So I'm like, hmm, how can I build something to teach people stuff, right? At the time, online courses were just starting to get popular. Like they're super popular now, but at the time they were like pretty new still. So I took me a couple of years to build up. I was still like working 80 hours a week. I was traveling nonstop. I just got promoted. I mean, I was in a hotel room at least 100 nights a year and we just had a baby. So I'm like, okay, you know what? At this point, I'm going to go and I'm going to, Build something out. This is about 2017 when I started to build. I'm, like, I'm going to build an online course. In my free time, I started building and recording an online course for B2B sales. Something that I could have given myself when I started in B2B sales. Something that would have given me the step-by-step blueprint to success. So I remember taking two years to build out. I did a really soft launch in January 2019. And I woke up and made $2,000 overnight. And I'm like, whoa. Better than $9. Yeah, right. Because at this point, when you're earning a very, very high multiple six figures, it's really hard to leave that for $9 an ebook. So I'm like, hmm, I could scale this bad boy, right? But more importantly, I can serve people at a higher level. Like now I can truly impact more people because at this point, I had a great career, big team, I had over 100 plus employees, they're over multiple states, and we're doing tons of revenue. Now, that was all really cool and stuff, but I was limited to my impact to the company. I'm like, if I want to serve more people in other countries, I have to do it on my, on my own terms. So I started planning out, you know, basically how I basically leave corporate America. So number one, I had what's called the Presence Club trip, which is a free awards trip for the top performers, a five-star resort. I wanted my free trip. That was in August, right? So I wanted that. And then there's also a bunch of stock I was going to invest as well. So I wanted my stock. I was, was going to invest. And I knew there'd be an earnings call in September that'll make the price go up with stock. And that was the best time to cash out. So I'm like, okay. So I timed it all out. Nine months later, boom, September 2019, I cashed out my stock, had my trip. Boom, I rolled out and started my business overnight. And we've been going now for about 20 plus, maybe 21 months now. It's been an absolutely amazing journey. But just like anything else, there's ups and there's downs, just like anything else. And the key is, even when the, when the downs come, you keep going. You just keep on going. And that's how eventually, if you don't give up, eventually you're going to have success if you are going the right direction. I know you've talked about how the fear of failure has motivated you your entire life. Why is that? And you actually had a post recently on LinkedIn in which you said you started to get maybe a little bit of cold feet, that you had jumped in full force into Venley Consulting and left that Fortune 500 company. 
Yeah. So fear of failure is something that's always been inside me, right? And I think I think it's because I grew up really poor. My parents were Chinese immigrants that came over to America and they had absolutely nothing, right? So my dad was escaping the Cultural Revolution, very, very poor, coming to America, having a Chinese restaurant, trying to support a couple of young kids. We had no money. And I remember growing up just in that environment, like ramen was a luxury. I remember literally like I would fear being homeless. I literally remember walking to my parents' restaurant on a Saturday morning after someone had broken in overnight and stole money out of the till. And I remember thinking to myself, this is it. Like I'm like six, seven years old. Like, this is it. The restaurant's going under. We're, we're screwed. Like we're going to have to go like, go like, go live in the woods somewhere. I was reading these books. I'm like, about kids live in the woods. I'm like, I'm going to be a boxcar child now. I'm going to find a boxcar somewhere, live, in, live out in the woods somewhere, and we're going to survive. So there was this fear of instability, a fear of not having security. So as I grew up, I started to realize I can control the controllables. And I remember vowing to myself to never let myself be in a position where I ever had to worry about money. And I remember being... 19 years old with my dad, we would work all week. And we, I mean, it was a festival where we would work really like, you know, we wake up at six in the morning and we get done around one or two in the morning on a festival, send up food stand, selling food. And I remember a Sunday now we're cleaning. It's like 1 a.m. We're cleaning pots and pans in the garage. It's an industrial kitchen in this garage. We're cleaning pots and pans. I'm exhausted. He's exhausted. And I told my dad, I said, I'm said, I'm like, dad, when I graduate and later on when, when I'm older, I'm going to find a way to build a life and make the money I want by using my brain. I don't want to stand on my feet all day behind a 150 degree stove in the 100 degree weather outside cooking chicken and slinging noodles anymore. I'm going to find a way. So all the experiences as a child growing up in the environment forced me to realize there's something greater out there. I can go accomplish it. It won't be easy, but it'll be worth it. Now, that fear of failure still drives me even to the day because you never know, right? And at the end of the day, if, if you have that fear of failure in your life driving you, you have two choices. You accept it or you take action. I just chose to take action. Mm. Could you share a time in your professional life, Marcus, maybe when you did fail? Maybe you screwed up a big presentation. Whatever it was, it's less about what you screwed up and more about how you persevered and the lesson that you learned in the process. Totally. So now, I don't necessarily see it as uh, screwing up, right? But you learn from every experience. And I remember, so I just left my great enterprise career, lost success. Everyone's like, why are you making this move? It's scary. Made this big jump to this new company, which I was really excited about, right? And within six months, and I was having success, which is totally fine. But within six months, though, my boss quit. My boss's boss quit. My boss's boss's boss quit. So the VP director, multiple directors quit, and my salesman quit. All within the first, within a couple of weeks after six months, I was there. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this is a sinking ship. Like, what have I gotten myself into? I have made a terrible decision. <laughs> like, oh no, like, oh my, everyone was right. Like, I got sold into this job, right? I'm like, oh, this is not what I expected. Because part of the reason I went there was for the leadership. They knew my background, at least. Like, I was like supposed to be like fast enough to be their next leader and do all these things. And now I'm like, this is gone. So at that point, I had a decision to make. I wasn't going to go back though. I knew I was going to keep moving forward. So I kept performing. And then when the new VP got placed into, into his role, I'm like, I'm going to position myself as the obvious choice. 
and it wasn't easy, right? And I was interviewing up against multiple people that had way more experience, longer track with the company. I'm like, how can I show him, even though I've been here for six to seven months, that I'm the best fit? So I outprepared everyone and positioned my argument to be so persuasive that I was the obvious choice for that role. I didn't find exactly what he would need to have because it turned out the team I was on was the worst team in the company. I had all the skills to do exactly what he would do. Take this team, staff it, recruit, and train them to be superstars. And I showed proof. And I established, I even got the ex-VP, the ex-director, and ex sales not to write me recommendation letters <laughs> to give to the new VP. I mean, so I best positioned myself to win as a result. So at the end of the day, and I ended up getting winning the interview, got the job, et cetera, which is cool, right? But it's positioning myself to be the obvious choice for that. And what do you think the lesson is, the takeaway from that? So the lesson's pretty simple. Sometimes when you are faced with an obstacle or adversity like that, it's a huge opportunity for you to show up. And usually it's in the darkest moments in your lives where you need to show up the most. And at that point, you can the curl in a ball and cry, which I did for a little bit. But then after that, now what? Go take action. That's all I did. I love it. Final T for C question, Marcus. If you could go back to the University of Oregon and do it all over again, but based on the immense wisdom you have right now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I would say, especially if I could redo everything, I would say invest in mentors earlier on. One of the things was, I think early on, so even now, for a lot of people, they, they think, hey, I'm going to find a mentor, et cetera, which can be really good. You can get mentors all across the board. But one of the fastest ways to acquire knowledge is from people that are massively successful. And I find some of the most successful people in the world, you have to buy their knowledge. You have to. You either buy into masterminds, you either buy into programs, because that's how you actually can acquire their knowledge. And I wish I did that earlier on. Early on, I didn't understand the power of investing myself like that. But if I had known that, that would have helped me accelerate so many things. Like, for example, let's just say if I want to get really good at finances and investing. If I had started investing in age 18, that's four years I would have gained on myself in investing. But I didn't know any better, right? Four years of compounding interest, right? Whatever I acknowledge I want to acquire, it's four years of compounding those skills to develop even more. We can't get time back, right? Time is the most valuable resource that we have. It's infinitely more valuable than money. So we have to do whatever we can to get time back. And you do that through acquired knowledge. And acquired knowledge comes through either time, paying pay through time, or for the money, or both. If you can do both early on, that will serve you a lot more going through college, your life, et cetera. And many people are like, oh, well, I don't have the money, I don't whatever. I'm telling you right now, find a way. Find a way to acquire the knowledge. Find a way to pay for it, right? It's If you start thinking this way, you start realizing how little time we truly have on earth. Every day flies like this. But if you invest early on, you can really change the trajectory of everything. If I learned how to communicate better when I was 18, I think I would have better relationships. If I had learned how to manage my time better, I'd be more productive. So all those things compound early on. So find ways to acquire knowledge early on. It'll pay you dividends for the future. Marcus is the president and co-founder of Venly and... He is the co-founder and I guess you're the lead teacher in the Six Figure Sales Academy, which is part of Venly, which educates people on the step-by-step bulletproof sales blueprint to close more successful deals. Marcus, 
I want to thank you so much for making so much time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. You are obviously an extraordinary guy who has, my goodness, you, are you even in your mid thirties? You've got so much more. Mid thirties. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Well, the sky is the limit. Watch this space folks, because Marcus Chan is going to be a name that is going to be ubiquitous. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.